0: Hey, it's the Official Tapes. This is a radio program where we feature the officially released music from the Grateful Dead vault. The program's name, Official Tapes. You can always get more information at the website, officialtapes.com. I'm Corey, and we have always had kind of a re- reoccurring character throughout the program. His name is Owsley Stanley. Now, I would highly recommend checking out some of the previous interviews that we've done with the... Owsley Stanley Foundation get some information on Owsley Stanley get some info on the foundation also the uh, previous release Well, we've caught up with the Owsley Stanley Foundation because They've got a new release and it features the man in black now throughout this feature You're going to hear a couple of different voices
1: Johnny totally wins over this crowd of 700. I mean, they're whooping it up like they're a crowd of 2000 I mean, it's a it's it's pretty amazing rapport.
0: That's Hawk, and this voice is Pete Bell. It's really hard to write about music. Music is something you
2: listen to, but it's not necessarily something you talk about. And this release is different. This one is a story. It's amazing music, but it's also a really cool story.
0: And voice number three.
2: I mean, there's nothing like that voice. And in this
3: particular recording, it's such an intimate experience of Johnny Cat.
0: Now, that voice is Starfighter Stanley. He's the son of Owsley Stanley. Now, those three voices, Pete Bell, Starfinder, and Hawk, they represent the foundation. And here they are talking about their latest release, Bears Sonic Journals, Johnny Cash at the Carousel Ballroom, April 24th, 1968.
3: Would go with me sometimes when we were in town together. We'd go to the Grateful Dead's vault where all of the tapes were stored together for a long time. And it was, you know, big climate controlled, giant ceiling doors with fire suppression system and, you know, alarms and all that. And, you know, we'd go through the tapes and he'd pull things out and look at the boxes and start telling stories about, like, he'd remember that night. He'd look at his writing on the box and be like, oh yeah, this, you know, and start telling a story about that night or the different musicians and, um, but he never pulled that particular tape out in one of our visits. So I didn't get the story that went along with the reel. I, I did get to hear it when he was alive because he had pulled a number of reels that he thought were really merited closer examination sooner while he was alive. And so he had marked a few, And so he had a flat transfer of the Johnny Cash that I got to hear um, years back. I remember the goosebumps that I got the first time I listened to it because the tape archive has some, you know, just wonderful moments and then just some heartbreak moments. There's this, as the tape, like, machine comes to life and then you hear, dark as a dungeon and dang as a... I was like, wait
2: a minute, where'd that go? I bought the original vinyl for Folsom and for San Quentin, and I spun them up just so I could hear what they sounded like originally. And Folsom lives large in our memories because it's just the most amazing show right it's Johnny Cash in a, in a prison cafeteria but it does sound like a prison cafeteria it's what brings that show to life is the performance the energy but not the sonics exactly and then by the time of St Quentin the label knew they had a hit right when they made the first one they didn't know but on the second one they sure did and they rolled in their very best of everything equipment engineers and it's a spectacular recording but Often live recordings aren't all that live. There's some editorial quality to it, let's say. And in the case of San Quentin, you can hear there's some equalization. You know, they take Johnny's voice and they make it even bloomier. And, you know, beyond that,
3: those two albums, you know, they're live shows, but Johnny knew that he was recording for an album. Those were intentionally set to be made
2: into releases. Now the magic of Bear's Sonic Journals is Bear wanted to capture what the room sounded like. What did it sound like to be in the hall that night? So what we have is this missing chapter of, it's verite. It puts you in the room that night. So, you know, what we found out is yes, there should be another 68 show because you got different songs, different performances, but also a totally different sound. What did Johnny actually sound like? What did it sound like to be in the room in 68? This is a
3: Johnny Cash show. This is, and it's a small, intimate, you know, there were 700 people in the audience. So he wasn't presenting this, you know, with an eye toward the greater audience. This was a show for these 700 people and that was it. The fact that Bear was mixing and Bear was recording, that's gravy. And so this show gives you a much truer sense of what it was like to be one of those 700 people in San Francisco on that night. Not just sonically, but you know, this is a chance to actually be at a Johnny Cash show
2: then. Without being a prisoner.
1: You know, and how do you get to the carousel? I mean, the last official scheduled gig was in Des Moines, Iowa on April 21st. Not sure exactly how he got to the carousel. Was this some sort of honeymoon? He'd just been married the month before to June, and then they were on on tour. Maybe they didn't get a chance to get a break. But he had the Tennessee Three with him. The Statler brothers went home. Mother Maybelle and June's sister went home. What were they doing out there? And then you hear this, uh, I think it was before Green, Green Grass of Home, where... Johnny mentions Bill Fuller.
4: Thank you very much. The last time we were, okay, we were, the last time we were here it was just before we went on tour to Ireland uh, for Mr. Bill Fuller, and we sang a we sing a song that uh, I wrote. Seven years.
1: Yeah, he just drops this name of Bill Fuller. We played at some of his dance halls. I think he was referring to Ireland. Well, Bill Fuller was the owner of the Carousel Ballroom. So. Johnny had to be aware of that. And for all we know, he may have thought that Bill Fuller was still the owner. Maybe he was still the owner. I'm not sure who the Grateful Dead and the collective that was running, you know, managing the, the venue were actually leasing from. It may still have been Bill Fuller at that point. So it could have been a Bill Fuller connection that led him to, to be there. Starfinder's mom talks about, she has vivid memories of pursuing Johnny Cash in, in terms of setting up the gig. Others have, have speculated that this was sort of a classic, you know, sort of Ron Rackow move to, you know, let's see if we could get Johnny out here. And it fit, the way Rony talks about it is that it fit with the diversity of artists that we tried to bring into this sort of laboratory space, this social experiment that we were conducting. Rony said, and the word that stuck with me very early on into this process, turned out to be a keyword throughout the liner notes, and that is authenticity, authenticity, authenticity. When we were booking for the Carousel Ballroom, we were looking for authentic artists that we loved. if that's Thelonious Monk in jazz, great. If that's Johnny Cash in country music, great. We didn't care as long as it was good.
2: The set list is different. John Carter Cash said, this is not the Johnny Cash show. And what he meant by that was, Johnny toured with a very predictable regular show each night. He played agricultural fairs, he played uh, VFW halls, and he played the Johnny Cash Show is what he called that. And the foundation showed us the, uh, it's essentially a call list of all the dates that he was scheduled to play that tour. And it says, the Johnny Cash Show. And this is literally not on those lists. So he played something different. And John Carter Cash is looking at the set list. and he says, you know, this is something different. We'll never know for sure why he changed it up, but we think it was for the hippies. He knew this was different. Johnny Cash was by no means a hippie. He was an activist. He played for prisoners. He played for Native Americans. He played for outsiders. He played for working people. He loved Bob Dylan. And he brought all of that together in this set list. It was very much a show for people who cared about the world around them. And, you know, it's a show for outsiders. That's what you hear here.
1: Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the Gordon Lightfoot story is that uh, this was Gordon's first trip to California, as we understand it.
4: We had a request from a very distinguished gentleman who's with us tonight. I don't know if anybody knows he's here, but it's a pleasure to have him come drop by and see us. Gordon Lightfoot. Where are you, Gordon?
1: He was there the whole week and he kept coming back to the carousel. Uh, I think he was there the weekend before. Then he was there for Johnny's show on Wednesday night. Then he came back and did an impromptu set about 25 minutes worth before Steve Miller played the following Saturday. And, you know, it's just an interesting moment in history. And keeping in the spirit of everything is connected, you know, there are the two Bob Dylan songs that Johnny plays back to back. And, you know, one of them is very rare uh, One Too Many Mornings. It's the, earliest known live concert performance of that song that he had recorded with Bob, but not released and didn't release, I think, for more than a year or so. But this is a very stripped down version of it, unlike any other that's ever been performed. So you've got these Bob Dylan tunes and Bob Dylan, when Johnny gets his first, you know, his TV show, Bob Dylan's his first guest. The second guest is Gordon Lightfoot. And yeah, so everything is sort of connected in these funny ways, you know, from the Alembic guitar <laughs> to Gordon Lightfoot being in the audience. Mm-hmm.
2: Cash Cabin is Johnny Cash's Fortress of Solitude. It's where he would go to get away from it all. And Rick Rubin then turned it into a studio where he recorded Hurt and all of the later recordings. So Dave Schools from widespread panic was down there with hardworking Americans and they were touring the property, and they go to the barn and there's some lumber in the barn. And he said, well, what's this? And he said, well, Johnny and June used to go to Jamaica and they had a Jamaican mahogany tree on the property and it fell. And Johnny loved the lumber, so he brought it out here to Henderson, Tennessee to have it dried. And he said, you know, that that would make a real nice base. And maybe I could um, sweet talk a little bit of that lumber off you and send that to my friends at Alembic get a base made out of that john carter cash he said i'll do that on one condition and that's that you make a twin for me so he gets the most beautiful base made and uh, sue wickersham at alembic on her own volition she went in and did an inlay on the headstock of johnny cash flipping the bird so just his hand just the middle finger from the famous Marshall photograph from the San Quentin show.
3: The middle finger is on the back of the peghead, so, <laughs> so
2: Dave's the only one who can see it. <laughs> he named his bass Cashwood, so that's the origin of the bass. That's um, whose the- twin is hanging up in the catch cabin.
1: And I think it's important to mention the types of partners that we had and the, you know, incredible partnership, particularly from BMG, we had complete artistic control. We got to control the sound. We got to control the look and feel. It got to be set up as a Bears Sonic Journal's, you know, brand, which continues to get stronger. People are starting to recognize the series. And, you know, that could have been a tougher negotiation. It's a credit to them to recognize, you know, what they had in us as a partner and sort of newcomers not nearly as sophisticated as they are without nearly the resources that they have. And also to sort of you know, treat us with respect that you know, we're, we're not just another guy with a tape. Bears tapes are not just somebody else's tapes you know, from a handheld audience you know, recorder or something. This is, this is an exceptional recording uh, of an exceptional moment in history. It's not perfect. You know, they recognize that and heard that, but it's outstanding for the vintage.
4: song from the show that we did at Polson prison it's in the album that's out this week. It's
3: called the cocaine blues in the sonic journals recordings there's an evolution of his sound techniques of his recording techniques his mic selection the the quality of the equipment you know all of that changes over time you know at this time i believe the original impetus for his uh, trying this particular recording technique came from something the beatles were doing
4: next morning and I grabbed that gun Took a shot of cocaine and away I run Made a good run but I run too slow They overtook me
1: down in Juarez, Mexico You've got this prominent, iconic voice of Johnny in your left left hemisphere with his acoustic guitar.
4: in the hot joints, drinking the fill It walked the sheriff from Jericho Hill Willie Lee, your name is not Jack Brown. You're the dirty hack that shut your woman down.
3: And the Tennessee Three were over on the other side.
1: I like to turn the dial over so I could just hear Luther chipping and chugging and his endless creativity I find to be so inspiring. Luther is endlessly creative, but never steps out of his lane, never hogs the limelight. It is in service of the characters that Johnny's singing about. That yes,
4: oh yes, my name is Willie Lee got a warrant just to read it to me shut her down because she made me slow i thought i was her daddy but she had five more
1: we tried many different ways to bring johnny's voice to center to make it more conventional you know more like what johnny cash fans would be used to listening to
4: when i was arrested i was dressed in black they put me on a train and they took me back and
1: every time we brought it to center, what ended up happening was that we found an essential component of the musical dialogue was lost, and that is the twang off of Luther's guitar. Our second trip to the Cash Cabin, we brought both mastered versions. We called it the native version and the sort of more of a mono mix to bring Johnny's voice to center. We had a backup plan to, to propose to release. Okay, if 15 million Johnny Cash fans need to hear Johnny's voice in the center, let's do a two CD release. The first one will be what the people want, and the second will be Owsley's native mix so you can hear them as it was and what it came to be. But we didn't have to go down that path. John Carter made the, uh, what we think is the, the right decision and an inspired decision And we played them both for him and, and that's you know where he said you know what would i say to bear if i changed his mix and that was music to our ears into
4: the courtroom a trial began where i was handled by 12 honest men just before the jury started out I saw that little judge
3: comes to look up. It's interesting, too, because his fascination with point source systems and his recognition of the serious limitations of stereo, you know, came out of that synesthetic episode that he had, you know, tripping his face off on acid one night and having wires crossed in his brain where he started to, as far as he can tell, he started to interpret the sound that was coming into his ears with the visual cortex of his brain. And so he was literally seeing sound. He was seeing the music coming out of the speaker and moving around the room. And it blew his mind because it it didn't at all resemble what he expected, you know, sound should look like, <laughs> whatever that is. And uh, you know, it was like being in a giant bowl of jello and watching all the reverberations move around the room. And he realized, you know, that it was really important. And he tried really hard to hang on to it because it, it can be challenging to do that in the throes of a of an intense <laughs> psychedelic experience. The next day it's not quite all as clear as it was in the moment, but he recognized that there was this dissonance that was introduced by splitting that same sound into two different places and and then blasting it at yourself. If you're sitting right in the middle, those sounds hit your ears at this precisely overlapping point where it seems to your brain that it's coming from right in front of you. But when you move off center, then instead of those two sounds resolving to one sound in the middle, you get two sounds coming at you. And it's four sounds because you got two ears and it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, so even though your ears can hear it, your brain can't figure out what it means. And it, it turns into mud. And you know, so you can't understand lyrics, you can't understand that you, you lose the clarity. And that's because of how precisely your brain can distinguish those little tiny lags in, in time between that sound getting to your right ear versus the same sound getting to your left ear. And it tells you where that sound came from. That's directional information. It also at the same time, the reverberations that are coming to you tell you what the room you're in sounds like, how big it is, how resonant it is. And so you get all this spatial information from that, how your brain interprets that one sound. And so when you mess with that and you split it in half and you put it in two different places and then you add all that information, you lose it. And so that's, I think, part of one of the reasons why Bear's recordings have such an ability to capture the sound of the room that the music was happening in, is because he recognized that and the way that he was trying to capture the sound was in service of preserving that information so that you could retranslate it. Now you can mess it up by <laughs> splitting your speaker system. And so, you know, Bear was really adamant about this recording and the recordings from this era in general, the carousel recordings are all in this weird split, um, weird, most conventionally here. this, you know, not having mirrored right and left channels. And with the Jazz Joplin Big Brother shows that he did before he died, it came out after he died, but he had done the mastering with Paul Stubblebine and, and that whole thing. And he was adamant. There's no way this does not get remixed to stereo. I don't care. I will not let you put it out. We'll rip up the contract, whatever. It can't be remixed. You, you know. And so he was very, very clear that the way it was was important. We didn't sit on that. I mean, we, you know, Bear was always aiming higher every time, so
1: we checked <laughs> to see if if things had changed and he was right. Some people are not going to understand that. And much is going to depend on what they're listening on when you
3: play that back you're creating the soundscape that was in front of you. You know, uh, Johnny was on the left side and the Tennessee three were over t- on the other side. And and so if you were right in front of them and they're playing through their amplifiers and you know, it's a small venues, that's what was coming off the stage. So there's this verisimilitude to to the experience of being, you know, if you're up on the in the front row, you know, you're getting that sound from different places. That's the way it was.
2: We talked about different mixes. We talked about different voices to tell the story, you know, about bringing in Bob Weir to tell about influence.
1: Obviously, the Grateful Dead universe is pretty important to the Owsley Stanley story. We thought that uh, Bobby was a natural pick. Also, you know, Big River was played almost 400 times in his repertoire from 1971. It wasn't the first Johnny Cash uh, cover that the Dead played, of course. uh, Green, green grass of home was at Jerry's suggestion that, that Bob sing that song. Johnny Cash was a voice that had been in Bobby's life since when he was eight years old, I think was when The Sun Recordings came out or somewhere on there. And, you know, to have an artist of Bobby's stature, write a personal essay about another artist that was inspiring to him throughout his whole career. And, you know, I think that the other thing that he was really instructive to us on was the way that the band, including Johnny, is in complete service to the characters in Johnny's songs and what that meant. Bobby was a demonstration of authenticity. And that's what made Johnny so accessible to so many people. It's what inspired his singing, Bobby's singing, and sort of taking on these roles. And you've got these these country tunes and these western tunes and original tunes that Bob wrote, where you can see how he inhabits the character in much the same way. You know, here's this iconic figure for Bobby, who, you know, I think the last line of Bobby's essay is one of the things that I really love. He says, you know, Johnny Cash was around for decades, but it was instructive. To me that if I really made every effort to pay attention to the characters and be as authentic as I possibly could, maybe I'd still be doing this for a few decades. (laughs) What a great way to end the piece. And thank you, Bobby, for doing it for all these decades and for keeping on carrying on, man. Mm -hmm.
2: school's contribution is amazing to tell about a different kind of influence which was what did the next generation think about this music and the john carter cash one absolutely blew us away so john carter cash writes a very personal story about his mom his dad and this is very much a a love story johnny and june married just months before this show johnny was in love with june and he'd been pursuing her for years but he was hardly addicted to pills, and June wouldn't have anything to do with him until he sobered up. And he finally did, and that's months before this show. But it was um, an absolutely remarkable story on on his behalf. We tried to honor that story with the cover. You can see it's pretty much an image of Johnny and June together, not just Johnny. We found an amazing artist who's Archie to add another level to the story. So all all this. Um, Down to the manufacturing, you'll see with the physical products, just how beautiful they are that they, you know, the materials themselves are all become part of the story too. So for a tiny foundation that took, that took a very long time.
3: You know, we always love it when people come to our website, which is OwsleyStanleyFoundation.org. And, you know, all of, uh, what, we're up to eight <laughs> Sonic Journals. Uh, all, of our, all of our titles are up there, and there's landing pages that tell you a bit about each one. You can get high-res um, downloads, uh, you know, at all the usual
2: places that you would buy digital music these days. Well, the digital version is different than the vinyl version and that they were mastered differently. So a lot of people take the shortcut of doing a digital master and cutting that right to vinyl. And we actually go back and do an entirely separate master. This is with Paul Stubblebine, who worked directly with there on Janis Joplin. And so we can get into the mind of... Uh, bear and find out what kind of decisions he would have made in mastering. so it's an all analog production.
3: And with this release, we are doing a almost <laughs> almost simultaneous vinyl release, but there's two vinyl versions. There's a standard two platter uh, black vinyl, and then there's a, a special edition box set. The special box set has a bunch of uh, additional
2: toys and special bits. It'll be a bit of a surprise, but they're they're not just souvenirs. It's all in service uh, to the story. Everything we do is about telling the story as deeply as possible. And this was the first time we had the chance with the special edition to be able to tell the story in 3D a little bit. So we, we ran with that. The direction of the whole packet
3: um, is just a beautiful a beautiful piece.
1: This is an exceptional recording uh, of an exceptional moment in history. It's not perfect, but it's outstanding for the vintage.